You know, happenstance is a hell of a thing. Our individual realities often have happenstance that would define a whole epoch of our life. Sometimes, though, for some of us, rarer still one of us, there's a happenstance that completely alters the course of our species. Our collective scientific history is full of such individuals, and such lauded happenstance. We're told about the giants of science, who so altered time by their revolutionary ideas. Einstein, Curie, Newton, Darwin, Tesla, Lucretius. Though somewhere very recently, we seem to have either run out of steam and no longer produced such people, or they stopped reaching notoriety during their lifetime. Something I was introduced to in the startup world, but now I realize is a truism everywhere, is that you can have the best idea, execute it perfectly, but come against some wrong timing and end up falling flat on your face. In the consumer world, it's quite easy for the face plant to be measured. Did people buy it? But what about in science, where there's supposed to be a methodology that can be reproduced to express the same results? But what if you reproduce the experiments only to get different results? Kevin Simler and Robin Hansen wrote a book titled The Elephant in the Brain, which tries to introduce and explain a fundamental part of human beings that, just like the elephant in the room, is massive, takes up much space, but we refuse to acknowledge it. According to them, the elephant in our brains is that deception and self-deceptions are key aspects in the way we function, and furthermore, what motivates our deception is to be an accepted member of a community. That aspect of ourselves is only one of the many roots to the base societies that emerged with us. And as far as I see it, if we don't recognize that about ourselves, we can never transcend past it. Nor will we be able to stop systems we create from mirroring that aspect. A common phrase, where there's people, there's politics. And outside of the lovely alliteration there, it's a great truism for what starts to occur when we start to group together. Why I choose to spend so much time on this show talking about politics, trying other ways to see it, whether it's ancient history or science in this one, is because I'm trying to better understand the fundamentals, the basics of who we are and the reality we are in. In this interview, beyond trying to capture a truly mind-bending reality about the world we live in, it gives us a glimpse into the elephant in the brain stuck at the center of our scientific community. One of the ideas being we know all there is to know about water, how it forms on our planet, how it's used in our cells, through onto how it can combine, and what will result from that. Though those are the norms my guest Dr. Gerald Pollack has upended with the help of his team, and the discovery of an additional phase of water. Turns out, if you're curious... Get the right timing, read happenstance, and have the courage not to be affected by others in your community trying to push you out and discourage your ideas. You can discover all that we do not know about water. This is an incredible moment for me to be able to talk with Dr. Pollock. I'm very grateful that he took the time out of his busy schedule to do so. And in listening, I hope you walk away more curious about the world around you. The first part of the interview with Dr. Pollock he tells me what makes him most happy, which leads rather fittingly into a sneak peek behind the curtain 
into how the highest levels of science is done. Before we go into what is structured water, how does it behave, and what does it teach us about the world, then wrapping up talking about the health properties of structured water and some of the amazing research being done. To say nothing of the paradigm-shifting engineering potential that can be done. Dr. Pollack has an excellent website that has all kinds of links to his work, including the book that's sitting on my coffee table, which explains this discovery, titled The Fourth Phase of Water, Beyond Solid, Liquid, Vapor. If you do find yourself on his site, I really encourage you to head over to the Publications tab and check out Dr. Pollack's essay, the title being true to his character is A Few Potentially Helpful Guidelines for Impactful Writing. I've taken writing seriously pretty much all my life. I can, I can tell you it is a wellspring of wisdom and should be considered required reading for anyone looking to write something worth reading from an email, love letter, or an intro message to a podcast. He also has two more books that are close to ready for publication, which he mentions on the call, and I can tell you I'm absolutely itching to read them. Quick note I want to make before the episode, and any potential deep dive may occur. Dr. Pollack is not affiliated with any of the many products you're likely to find along the way, which steal his picture off his site and cite his work. Just like you may have heard me mention in regards to emerging tech, in the episode prior even, there's a lot of grifters out there when there's a new discovery or technology. All right, with that, thank you immensely for Dr. Pollock for taking the time. Thank you to the listener, who I'm wishing well wherever it is this finds you on our lovely blue planet. Real quick before the episode begins, if you like what you hear, please tap that follow or subscribe button. You also can find this episode all episodes in the series, or check out our daily minute podcast by visiting us at bandwidth.productions. All right. Well, um, thank you very much again. I really appreciate you taking the time. Would you kick us off by introducing yourself really quick? Uh, sure. Uh, I'm uh, Gerald Pollack, and um, well, I'm not sure what to say. I'm a professor at the University of Washington in Seattle, uh, and during the, the past couple of decades, we've been studying water, and water is my passion. Uh, I've got a lot of other passions, but... Um, <laughs> uh, and, and um, yeah, we, we discovered... We discovered something uh, new. I mean, it, what we discovered is not new, but the discovery is new. We found that water, water has uh, not the three phases that we all learned about, you know, solid, liquid, and vapor, but we found the fourth phase. And the fourth phase is, is, um, is not, uh, it's not merely a kind of laboratory curiosity that comes from the recesses of some um, uh, reclusive scientists' laboratory, but uh, it's something that that um, um, ha- ha- something that um, is a phase of water we discover that's all over, and it's water that fills our bodies. Um, it fills all our cells, and and um, I know that um, a lot of you may be skeptical uh, at first of something 
something like that. But you know, you you we we all think that uh, our bodies are filled with water. We know that our bodies are two thirds water, and we think of the water that's in our cells as liquid water. And the way you can easily dispel that notion is really simple: cut yourself. Now, <laughs> if if your body um, is filled with liquid water, as soon as you cut yourself, the water should come pouring out, um, you know, like um, a water pipe that's fractured. <laughs> that doesn't happen, at least it doesn't happen to most of us. Um, you know, maybe we get a little blood coming out, or a lot of blood coming out, but we don't get water that's pouring out. So the water that's inside our body is different from what we all uh, have have come to think. And, and what it is is this uh, fourth phase water that we we're able to identify, which has a, a kind of gel-like character, and it sticks to the solids uh, that is in, inside of our, our body. And that's why when you cut yourself, it doesn't come pouring out. So this is um, simply by, by way of introduction, and I, I, I just wanted to, to, to begin by suggesting that this kind of water is, is not ordinary water, and um, it's th this so-called fourth-phase water that we identified. Is that an okay introduction? <laughs> oh, you knocked it out of the park. It's more than okay. Uh, yeah, and I, I'm really geeked to get into talking to this about you, especially because how much of a shock it was to me to uh, first understand that your discovery was out there. Um, and I want to get into that. Uh, but first, uh, there's a question I ask every guest when they first join uh, to kind of yeah. understand ourselves um, before we get into the topic. And the, what I want to ask you is, uh, what do you like to do that makes you happy? Um, I like to discover the workings of nature. Uh, that That is what makes me the happiest. Um, you know, I, um, I'm happy to expound on that if you, uh, if you like, but... Um, of course. You know, okay, I will, will say a few words. So I started my career studying muscles and how muscles contract. And I was highly skeptical of, of the theory that was, was put out there. And it was put out by a, 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 you might, a Nobel laureate who was, you might say, a Nobel laureate among Nobel laureates. Uh, his name was Sir Andrew Huxley. And because he comes from the famous Huxley family, Everybody thought, well, you know, this is a godlike figure, and therefore he must be correct. And the problem is that he didn't agree with the evidence. Um, uh, rather fundamental evidence was simply out of accord with the theory. And in my own naive way, um, <laughs> I, I, I looked in, we did many experiments, and the results of the experiments simply didn't agree with, um, uh, with, with the predictions of the theory. They were way out of accord. And in, uh, as I say, in my own naive way, I, we pursued experiments for quite a few years, every one of which um, produced results that were grossly out of accord. Having spent um, quite a few years doing that and having come up with, with a, a mechanism that I thought was closer to the truth, and I wrote a book about it in 1990, some, some time ago, um, I, after a while, you know, uh, it's not that I gave up uh, because I thought that the ideas that I expressed were closer to the truth um, um, uh, than than what had been presented, but I came to the realization that that the process of science 
is not a process that leads to real understanding of nature. Uh, and it, it's, it's highly political. And l let me explain. Um, the, <laughs> it's political because, just think about it, you have, a, you have a Nobel laureate among Nobel laureates um, on one side, and on the other side you have this guy you know, with a white beard and, um, and whatever, uh, it was not white at the time, saying, hey, you know, it just doesn't work, it's not right. And now, if you're in the field and you have to decide uh, which, which way are you going to um, uh, lean or bend, it's a no-brainer. You're, you're going to follow the Nobel laureate because, <laughs> because that's the way to go. You get anointed by a guy named Huxley and, and wow, that's, that's great for your career. And, and so it just simply doesn't work. The challenger has almost, almost no chance uh, of success. That, that's not why I changed fields in the field of water, but uh, it, it is a factor that I think that pervades science nowadays, that it's really uh, difficult for the uh, scientist who is genuinely in search of truth to get there. There are too many obstacles along the way, and the obstacles, it's, um, it's a little bit akin to the political situation, you know? Um, um, if you want to get elected, uh, depending on who your co constituency is, um, you know, you stand for, not necessarily stand for truth, uh, you stand for whoever will get you elected, and so, so it, it's kind of uh, similar in some ways in the scientific system, and that's why if you, if you were to ask yourself, um, um, here, here's a question for you um, or anybody in your audience, it's a challenge. Okay, so I ask you to name even a single, single scientific revolution that's occurred in, let's say, the past uh, 30 years. I don't mean a technological revolution, uh, you know, like an iWatch or an iPhone or... Or, or the Zoom that we, we often use. I, I, I mean a scientific, a fundamental scientific discovery that has, has already succeeded in changing the world. Uh, examples from a long time ago, uh, you know, 60, 70 years ago, the genetic code, that's changed the world, uh, you know, uh, for, the, for the better or the worse. And, and uh, maybe 10 years before that is the splitting of the atom, again, for the better or worse, but it was a scientific revolution. Whoever thought that the atom could be split? Those, those, are, those are genuine scientific revolutions. Now, the challenge I would ask you or if, uh, anybody to name one during the past 30 years that has succeeded, not promised, but succeeded in, in changing the world, in changing everybody's life. I've asked that question uh, numerous times and I get a blank stare, what are you talking about? You know, um, and head scratching and, and some people will say, oh yeah, the Higgs boson. Well, you know, has the Higgs boson changed your life in a meaningful way? <laughs> it, it sounds like, you know, like a modern dance or something like that, um, the Higgs boson, uh, you know. Uh, it, it, um, it, it hasn't succeeded and, and this is an, an indictment um, of the process of doing science because, you know, in, in the past 100 years ago when there was virtually no money that was put in, into science, we had revolutions coming practically every year, especially in the field of physics, you know, with Niels Bohr and Einstein and Schrodinger and all, all of those 
those uh, physicists. But now, you know, you ask the question now, um, and um, it's, uh, it's, you, can't, you can't really think of anything that's uh, like that, which is, is really a pity. Um, but, and it has, to do with, it has to do with the process, I think, of, uh, of doing science. So maybe, maybe I'm, I, I'm going astray in, um, in trying to answer your question, but I've come to realize now, having been in several, several fields, that it's the same in every, every field. There's, there's money. Um, scientists complain there's not enough money, and perhaps they're, they're right. But the money is, is not spent in a, in a way that allows for scientific breakthroughs. It's kind of programmed, you know, if you go, if you try to get money to do research and you need money to do research to run a laboratory and you go, say, to the National Science Foundation or the National Institutes of Health, depending on, on what you're doing, um, they program the different areas that are allowable areas of research. You know, they'll say, okay, uh, we're, we're interested in the genetics of cancer. And if you got a, if you, if you have a proposal, send it in. But if you're dealing with cancer in a way that doesn't deal with genetics but deals with another approach, you don't have a chance because um, the reviewers um, are the people who, you know, who are into the say the genetics of cancer. And if you propose something that's wildly different. In order for them to make judgment, uh, they have to educate themselves in your field, and they have to convince all the people sitting around the review table that your proposal makes sense. It's a real challenge. Um, and, and of course, the other people sitting around the review table will ask that particular reviewer questions, and the reviewer has to be able to answer the questions. Otherwise, the reviewer himself or herself is demolished. Nobody wants to be in that situation, so it's easier to say, oh, well, you know, this is pretty interesting, but, but uh, they haven't proposed the right kind of statistics to analyze this, and therefore, well, it, it, it gets a score that's below the funding threshold. And people know that. They understand. Scientists know that. And any, any scientist who has interest in success simply will not propose a radical idea. So what that means is that the radical ideas that have some chance, some chance of success and some chance of changing the world in a really major way, uh, they can't get started. And, and this is an indictment of the system. And nobody in the system really wants that kind of outcome. But the system itself has, has so much inertia that it's difficult to change. And so, so scientists are discouraged uh, from from uh, coming forth honestly with, with what they believe. And what they do instead is to propose something that they think will, will be funded. You see, that, that's, that's the goal, that's the aim, uh, to get funded. Because you can't get funded, you have nothing. And you lose and you get fired from your university position because they have interest in money. They get overhead from these organizations and they live on that overhead. And if you don't get your money, then you're, you're out. So the system itself is designed in such a way as to, <coughs> as to make revolutionary progress almost impossible. And that's why we haven't seen scientific revolutions in the past 30, 40 uh, years. Um, and it's, um, unfortunately, it's, uh, um, 
I'm not sure how to put it in a, in a polite way, but it's stymied, uh, yeah. it is stymying the process of, of science. Um, now, I'm not sure how I got, get, got off in that, in that direction. We were beginning to you, talk about water, but... Um, I think you answered what makes um, you happy by also expressing what makes you very unhappy so that by beating the system in some way, perhaps you get a yeah, stage of right, happiness. Right. So, <laughs> yeah. so I, yeah, I, I will just complete, complete the thought. It's easy to go astray by saying that um, uh, what makes me happy is discovering what I think is scientific truth. And I think we, we may have done that in the field of water. Uh, and I have two books um, that are um, very close to being published on, on different subjects. Uh, they're awaiting publication. I'm waiting for my son, who's my artist, who's a very gifted artist, uh, and he's busy remodeling his home. <laughs> so I'm waiting for him to finish the illustration so the books can be published. They're just about at, at the threshold of publication. And they deal with other aspects of nature. And uh, again, it's, it's nature that um, I, I think I perhaps have some idea of the real explanations, not the explanations that, um, that exist right now. And the next book, for example, deals with uh, an assortment of subjects uh, whose bottom line is that um, electrical charge uh, is really responsible for governing many phenomena that we see every day, but we, we, we think we sort of understand, but um, if you dig below the surface and ask the secondary question, there's no answer. And, and so the kind of satisfaction that I get from that is huge. I have no idea what the world will think about. Well, I do have some idea because, um, you know, I've subjected the ideas to um, uh, the criticism of my colleagues, and there is plenty of criticism. I deal with subjects like, um, um, uh, where, where should I? Uh, uh, what creates wind? What turns the earth so we see day and night? Um, how, how, how does weather actually occur? Uh, it's surprising how how little is known about about clouds and rain and um, you know like what keeps the clouds up in the sky. Clouds are made of water, and if you were to climb a tall ladder up up to the level of the clouds with a pail of water and turn it over, the water would come right down. Right? Well, the clouds are made of water. How come the cloud doesn't come right down? Or sometimes it does. It comes down as as rain. But wait a second. Why does rain come one droplet at a time instead of a one bathtub dump? You know, those are questions that people don't uh, ordinarily think about. But you know, if you really want to understand nature, you need to be able to understand that. And I can't tell you uh, what great pleasure I have, my favorite activity, working on um, on on those books. And another one. Um, maybe I'm going on too much, about the structure of the atom. Um, you know, this is pretty fundamental, and we all, we, all, we all learn about the structure of the atom, but we never think twice about it because it's been around, it's been around for 100 years or more. Uh, Niels Bohr uh, one day had an idea that the atom might have the same structure as, as the solar system, right? 
and you know, cool idea, and it makes sense because nature tends to repeat itself in different forms in different ways, and so it makes sense. So you have a nucleus that's sort of equivalent to the sun, and then you have electrons, now electron clouds, that revolve um, around uh, the nucleus. And we all learn it in middle school, and we all think, well, it's been around for how many generations, therefore it must be correct. But um, if you realize that um, what's happened over the years is that the quantum mechanics people uh, have gotten into the field and, um, and, and <laughs> you're smiling. I'm not sure why you're smiling, but uh, yeah, so quantum mechanics Because I, I, uh, I have grapes against, I think quantum mechanics is one of the examples of the group think that you've been describing earlier. That's why I'm laughing. Well, I, 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 yeah, I mean, I'm with you on, <laughs> on that. So they've invented um, uh, how many subatomic particles, uh, which they need in order to make that model work, you see. A good theory doesn't require Band-Aids, um, you know, and supplements. Uh, it, it, usually a good theory is one that explains more than you originally thought <laughs> because there's truth to it. But, you know, uh, if you have a... <laughs> If you have a model that requires an, every year a new subatomic particle to hold together, yeah, I, I guess groupthink is a, a, a good expression for it. So, so I mean, philosophically, that, that doesn't work. But there are such simple observations that, that just don't work. And, and I, I'm kind of surprised that, that people have not thought about them, and, or at least they have not publish them in any detail. And if you just think about it, you know, the nucleus contains uh, neutrons and protons. So neutrons are neutral, uh, right? But protons are positively charged. And they're all packed really tightly together. And each, each proton has a positive charge. So when you pack together positive charges, all they want to do is escape from one another, right? Um, they repel. Oh, this is the famous like, likes, like. I'm sorry, the famous what? This is Richard Feynman's like. No, this is Richard Feynman's uh, like, likes, like. No, right? well. What I, I was, well, I was actually going to ask you about, it, about something along this. Well, I, I will ha I'm happy to, to respond uh, to, to that particular question. But, but there is, in order for this, this like, like, likes to happen, you need opposite charges in between. But there are no opposite charges in between. Um, you see, so the nucleus basically wants to explode. And the physicists have recognized this problem, and and in order to uh, uh, circumvent this this obvious issue, they invented something called the strong force. And the strong force is a force that has exactly the right properties to hold the nucleus together, in spite of that uh, huge repulsive force. But nobody nobody has uh, independent evidence for the existence of. Uh, a strong force. It's like a Band-Aid um, designed to cover a gaping wound, you know? <laughs> it's, um, and uh, and if, if someone were to ask you um, to, to design uh, uh, or uh, come up forth with a model of the atom and you were asked to do that today, probably they'd say, well, go home and try again because it simply doesn't work. The first principles are violated, um, you see. And then just one more. Um, so the, the, the nucleus is positively charged, and the electrons, or electron clouds, is uh, now uh, thought of, they have negative charge. So you've got positive charge right at the center, negative charge out here, 
And what happens when you have negative and positive? They attract each other. And so the entire atom should collapse. But if it collapses, we have no atom left. We have nothing. We have a point. You see, so, so these are only two of a whole bunch of uh, fundamental issues that, uh, you know, don't make sense. And if they don't make sense, then the, the, um, <laughs> it, as scientists, it's our obligation to figure out what does make sense. See, and that's what my um, second forthcoming book is is about. And and the the original question was what gives me pleasure. And I can tell you that um, um, that a huge pleasure comes from at least thinking that you're on the right track in figuring out how nature works. I could go on and on and on on that one, but um, I think you probably have other other questions um, to ask. I think. Now I have millions more. I have millions more questions now after hearing that. Uh, I'm excited to hear that there's two, those two coming. I'm, I'm going to have to follow that very closely. I'm very excited about that. Uh, one thing to, to say about the general state of science is sometimes I wonder if it's a product of scale. Like the institutions have been at scale now, you know, for so long and um, you know, there hasn't been much revolutions in this time period, perhaps because the, the, the scaffolding in place is so strong to keep down uh, dissenting opinions because of what's built on top of the existing order um, and, and the shakeup that may come. Because Einstein, Bohr, um, you know, uh, all of them were at a time where everything was new. So, you know, the, there wasn't the long standing institutional connections and access and all of that to, to go. And I wonder if it's, you know, when there's, where there's people, there's politics and um, politics at scale often looks very similar. And I wonder if there's something to that. I, I, I hear you and I, I, I agree with you. Uh, science has become institutionalized and um, there, there, there are ways uh, to circumvent uh, the issues that we've we've been talking about, and um, you know, at one time I was really active in in trying to um, um, implement changes in in those two institutions, the National Institutes of Health and National Science Foundation. I was on various advisory boards and such, and we made some progress. Um, they we, we people began to under, understand that this was an issue, and for a year or so things changed. Um, there was an impact of uh, not only my uh, uh, offering, but other people as well. You know, but there were, were many stakeholders o over, over there who had something similar to say that you know, we got to do something because there have been no, no revolutions. And, um, and the, the, the key to the revolutions, you can't have, uh, if I challenge you, you can't be my reviewer. I mean, it sort of makes sense. It's like, you know, the French Revolution, you go to Louis the Sixteenth and say, hey, we have a few complaints, you know. <laughs> and, um, well, uh, thank you very much. <laughs> Appreciate your, your, um, your honest um, criticism, uh, but um, <laughs> that, that's it. No, nothing happens. People, you know, people who are in power like to retain their power, as we see um, ever so much today in, in, in politics. And it's really the same in scientific politics. So someone who's gained stature um, 
likes to retain that stature, and retaining the stature means that you know if you think if you think the Earth is flat, um, and someone comes around and challenges you and says, "Hey, no, you know we have evidence that it, it's round. Look at we look at the satellite images, and um, you know if you fly around the Earth, you can get back to the same point." Um, it, it looks like you try to get money. So what happens is, is that um, the the institutions uh, thinking that they're being conscientious uh, for such an Im important and um, potentially earth-shaking proposal like that, they're going to recruit the world's experts to say whether you're a crackpot or whether it makes sense. And who are those experts? So if you propose the earth is round. Um, you're going to face the experts who are all flat earth people. The last thing they want to do is to be dethroned. So uh, the setup is set up in such a way that you can't win. Uh, even no matter how much evidence you have for a particular point of view, it's almost impossible to win, you see. And, um, and so um, you, you, uh, you need to do something about that. And, and I, I actually, with the work that we have yet to talk about, um, I've been fortunate in um, attracting money from private funders who believe in, in truth-seeking and have been supporting me generously. Um, and so long as that continues, it, it works because it, it, it lends a kind of freedom uh, to do to actually pursue truth in the way that you see it. The institutional setup is different for the reasons I, I was describing. That um, you know you're always uh, you're always challenging the person who reviews you, and that doesn't work. Um, okay, I think I better stop here. I I'm on my bank. No, that's great. No, that was great. Yeah. No, that that was that was awesome though to to give a setup to, I mean a, a look behind the state of science that I think most people don't see. Um, someone that I think w you would be encouraged to check out is Eric Weinstein, because he talks about this a lot, in particular with uh, regards to physics. Um, and it's, he's, he has some very fascinating things to say about almost the exact same experience. But turning to talk about structured water, though, okay. I did find it fascinating. Okay, so I, I, I never heard of this before. Um, and I'm somebody who, as a friend of mine once put it, uh, likes collecting people that are on the fringes but make complete sense um, and because there's multiple people I've introduced him with them that he says fit that bill which I think you're pretty pretty much spot on with that too um, and I, so I found it from a tweet and it was somebody I f uh, follow or something on Twitter that was the algorithm was presenting to me where someone was essentially saying like hey like if you don't know about structured water like don't take me on a date was essentially what they were saying I don't remember the exact context and I never heard, I was like, structured water, like, what does that mean? So then I, I looked into it, I found your work, I went crazy on it, <laughs> and then I found a lot of other people who have done, you know, similar things with this fourth phase of water. Um, and it was earth shattering to me uh, for several reasons of, I never heard of it, it, it's, it seems foundational, it makes complete sense um, as far as what you're proposing. Um, and one of the funny things I, I found last night, uh, putting my thoughts together for this chat was that the Wikipedia article on it is calling it like a marketing scam and, you know, completely dismisses it, which I thought was fascinating. Um, which kind of a shows the scam. I actually haven't seen that. That's interesting. Marketing. <laughs> okay. <laughs> marketing for what? 
Well, that a people marketing structured water that improves your health and things like that and dismisses the concept of a fourth phase altogether as like a afterthought. Um, it's interesting. Uh, which is also funny because I read that right after reading some like rather promising results of people drinking and, and uh, or giving lab animals structured water, which was fascinating. Um, but regardless, um, and I went into it. And uh, so what I would like to do is first kind of set up what it is, which if I was to take a stab at it, it's um, the to, to give like a concept that listeners may understand or, or see in their life is if you're looking at water as it's running down or running over something and there's that glossiness to the top of it, that that glossiness is actually another state. So we know that water will evaporate when you boil it, for example, the steam that's evaporating water. We know that it's stable in a liquid form in a glass like I'm drinking as we talk um, or also that it freezes and it's you know ice. And we know those things. Um, a fun thing that I always like to bring up to twist people's noodle about ice is that ice skating is actually melting the ice for pressure, uh, which is why you're able to, you know, go on it, which now I think has something to do with the fourth phase of water that I wanted to ask you about. Um, and what you have discovered or, or rediscovered, because I think you even have talked, I heard you talk about that uh, there was somebody like around 100 years ago who proposed a gel-like state, um, is that that glossiness on uh, water as it's going over a stream or something like that, that sheen, that like plasticity that we kind of think of, um, is actually another state of water, which is a gel uh, that is, uh, what is it, H, it's H3 instead of H2. Uh, H3O2. H3O2, yeah. yeah, yeah. I, I wrote it on my whiteboard, I think, behind me. Um, yeah, so it's, it's a different state, different structure. It looks like a crystal, um, and it has some special funky properties that potentially can be tapped for many different things. Um, like it, the water filtration, your, I saw a diagram on your website of filtering water without power, power, which makes utter sense and is, is fascinating. Um, so is there anything, any color you would like to add to that as far as a the definition? There's, there's another phase of water. There's, it's a gel. It has a specific crystalline structure to it. Um, and it exists at the interface yeah, between it, water and the outside world. Yeah, it, well, it's not, it's not just at the interface that you're, uh, you're talking about. Um, this phase of water uh, builds uh, whenever you have a, um, a surface uh, that has a certain character to it we say hydrophilic water loving and most surfaces are are like that um, what happens is that um, so here let's say here's the surface of uh, of some material that has that characteristic and the water is sitting next to it and the first the first layer of water molecules, when it hits that surface, when it feels that surface, it undergoes a radical transformation from ordinary H2O to, uh, and, and, and H2O, you know, water molecules are bouncing around, uh, they're randomly oriented, bouncing around a fierce number of times per second or even per femtosecond. Uh, there, there's no real structure uh, to it. And what happens is that that first layer then undergoes the transformation and becomes ordered. And if you were to look in in this uh, direction, at, um, the perpendicular, um, along a line perpendicular to the surface, you'd see hexagons. You'd see a honeycomb kind of structure repeating hexagons. That's the, the, the first layer. And then that first layer... Uh, becomes a template for the buildup of the second layer, uh, which serves as a template for the buildup of the third, et cetera, et cetera. So this kind of, we say, fourth phase water, uh, there are other terms that we use for it, um, 
it, it builds layer by layer. And the number of layers is not trivial. Uh, it can build, we, we have examples in the laboratory where you can have as many under maybe extreme circumstances as like a million layers. We're talking macroscopic uh, scale. Um, and the way we, we, we discovered it um, is we, we, we took some water and we put some particles in the water. And uh, um, we used many kinds of particles, but initially something called microspheres, little tiny spherical particles, one micrometer or so in diameter. And they're all suspended in the water. And you plunk in this, uh, let's say, gel. It was how we started. Um, and we, we saw that, in, looking in the microscope, we saw that, um, so here, ne next to the surface, I'm trying to get my uh, hand in, <laughs> in the image. Um, it's not working very well. But uh, next to the uh, surface of that gel, we began to see that the, these microspheres were excluded. They were pushed out. So this region that was devoid of microspheres began to grow and grow and grow. And we found out later, as these layers grew and grew and grew, you get pushed out. And that's why we first called this exclusion zone, because it excludes. You know, it seemed uh, uh, logical. Uh, and actually, it worked very well um, because exclusion zone, EZ, is easy <laughs> to remember. <laughs> and um, so it doesn't work in some other countries, though, because they use Z instead of Z. So it's not, it's a little bit awkward to say it's EZ to remember, but EZ to remember really works well. And that, I think that was a maybe a, a kind of mistake because it doesn't really tell you uh, very much about the character of what's inside this EZ. Um, and that's why we later called it fourth phase, but the two are more or less equivalent. So, so what happens is this phase grows. And, um, and there were just let me just tell you a couple of characteristics that are fundamental. Um, the first characteristic, well, it's, it's structured. And, and this is the equivalent of what people once called, and still do to some extent, called structured water. And um, we're not the first at all to, to uh, discover structure. This has been for almost 100 years. In, in, uh, espoused by um, the late Gilbert Ling, who spent his whole career um, basically suggesting that in, inside every one of your cells, the water is not ordinary water, but it's structured water. And also by the great um, Halbert St. Georgie, who is considered to be the father of modern biochemistry. Um, and and uh, he discovered vitamin C, he got a Nobel Prize, and he was involved in many different fields of, of science. A, a, great, a great hero. So creative, uh, just really an a, amazing thinker and, 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 and doer. So in a sense, you know, our work, we stand on the shoulders of giants. Um, so, so we knew that there's got to be something there. And, and what we, we found uh, is this hexagonal kind of layered structure. And we were curious, and uh, at the time we didn't know what to expect. We stuck an electrode into that zone and another electrode uh, far away in the water that was way beyond. And we measured the electrical potential difference. Uh, we wanted to see if there was any charge in, 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 in this EZ or fourth phase. To our surprise, there was. And uh, typically it was negatively charged. Uh, this zone, this exclusion zone, fourth phase, uh, 
typically bore substantial negative charge. And then we're thinking, how could that be? Because, you know, it starts with water, H2O, and H2O is neutral. So how do you start with water, and the water gets transformed into something that's negative? There's something missing from the logic. Or there needs to be some positive charge somewhere else. And we found the positive charge. So um, as the uh, fourth phase grows, uh, negatively charged, and, and protons get kicked out. So the positive charge lies beyond um, this, this zone. So you've got negative in the exclusion zone and positive outside. It's a battery. You stick two electrodes in, you measure an electrical potential difference. And, you know, when you have a battery, batteries have energy. Uh, they produce energy, right? And we found by sticking two electrodes, one in the negative, one in the positive, you could light a light bulb. Um, and you can get energy uh, from, from this. That is energy from water. And th this was, for, for us, this was an amazing revelation because... You know, if this stuff exists inside your body, it, it means that it contains energy and it could produce energy for your, your, your body, uh, let alone the prospect of uh, producing energy for any, any use that you can conceive of if you can get the energy level up to some practical um, level. And, of course, that's a, that's a, a challenge. So, any any rate, that's another characteristic of of this fourth phase that typically it bears negative charge. A third or fourth or whatever characteristic is, um, you know, if you scratch your head and think about it, usually you can't get something for nothing, right? So if you're, if you're able to get electrical energy out of this, there must be some input energy, uh, right, that starts it all uh, because... You know, you have something that gets put in and something that, that comes out. Uh, and so what is it? Well, we found um, it, that after several years, and um, several years of a lot of head scratching, that's why I'm missing some hair, um, that it came from the sun. Um, we found that it was light. And, and this was an observation made by a student um, an undergraduate student who was doing what he was not supposed to be doing. <laughs> you know how that goes. And the younger they are, in my experience, the more curious they are. Um, people tend to lose their curiosity with, with age, or at least most, most do. So the student was, uh, was doing the kind of experiment I just described uh, with the microspheres and the gel, uh, whatever. And he noticed that um, on his right side there was a gooseneck lamp so he took the lamp and he shined it on the chamber out of curiosity. And um, he ran into my office and called me, please take a look. And I looked and I was just amazed because the region that received the illumination, the exclusion zone was three times the size of the region that didn't uh, receive the illumination. And so, you know, it didn't take a genius to figure out that, well, it looks like the energy of light, photons, are responsible for building or providing the energy uh, to build this easy and to separate the charge that I just told you about. And of course, after that, we we um, embarked on on studies to find out which wavelengths of light were responsible. 
and we didn't know. Um, and uh, you know, so we we explored uh, wavelengths at the short end from the ultraviolet through the visible spectrum through infrared, and we saw ultraviolet nothing, uh, visible light almost nothing. Uh, until we got to the reds, when we saw just a little bit, and then we went to longer wavelengths to the infrared, and and there it was amazing. Just a, a very small amount of infrared energy would result in huge buildup um, of what I've been talking about. So we were able to conclude, um, you know, this is it's not a complicated system. Um, you start with water um, under the right circumstances, the right kind of template, if you will. Um, you provide infrared energy, um, and this EZ builds up um, as a result. It separates charge, gives you, uh, it creates electrical energy out of light. Um, that's that that's the um, uh, tra transition that that occurs. Uh, 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 the water is a transducer. It's a transducer that transduces uh, light energy and perhaps other kinds in into essentially order. And electrical um, energy. So, so th those are the you know some of the more essential features of uh, what we we discovered. And maybe How? I should stop there and wait for your next question. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I appreciate that. That uh, that was a well, as I'm sure you're used to talking about it. That was a really great overview of everything, um, and really everything that you hit on is so much of what was the. Uh, it blew my mind, honestly, because it was. Ju it, it seems so um, foundational, basic, uh, essential to what is actually happening and occurring uh, within our body, as you as you like expand on. Uh, but even what is just possible within the state. So, what I want to ask before I, I really want to get into some of the like how it is in our body and some of the things that we could do with it, the applications. Um, but one of the things while we're on it is how much charge is there? Like you said that, that there's enough to, you know, light a light bulb. You know, you mentioned like how much water did it take to do that? And how big actually is the zone? Like, is it, well, if you um, hit it, is it like millimeters? Like, can you, uh, I, that's a great question. And um, I, I've, I've got to admit that um, uh, quant quantification, qu quantitation is not, my strong suit. I did grow up in engineering, where mathematics was was important, but I've uh, it's been a it's been a while, and so um, so in fact um, we 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 haven't done a whole lot in the way of quantification. I will tell you that in the laboratory, the amount of energy that we get is very small. It's minuscule, um, and. Uh, it's there, but it's it, it, it's um, it, it's small. And what when I said we were able to light a light bulb, I'm not referring to a, an old-fashioned incandescent hundred-watt light bulb. I'm referring to an LED um, light-emitting diode, whose current requirements are trivial. So, you know, the, the what one the, the the principle we we've demonstrated proof of principle. But we have not at all, by any means, demonstrated the practicality of this uh, of this principle. That's the next step, and um, as you know, I'm sure, um, between a laboratory demonstration and practical use is the so-called valley of death. A lot of observations in the laboratory um, never make it across the valley of death. They fall into this great big abyss and remain at the bottom. 
forever. They never make it. And uh, it's possible that that's where this is going to wind up. I'm, I'm hopeful that it won't be the case. Um, but, you know, referring back to the uh, question that you asked before about what gives me the greatest pleasure, it, 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 it's not the engineering development. Um, it's the discovery uh, the, of principles. So given the fact that in Seattle, where I live, the day has only 24 hours, you can't do everything. And um, um, we, we did actually put together a, a startup company. Um, I was not in favor of it, but one of my students practically insisted. He said, oh, this is going to take none of your time. Well, yeah. <laughs> and uh, unfortunately, the, um, the company folded after a few years because of some in, internal, um, uh, how shall I say, disagreement um, between two of the people on the board, two of the uh, critical people. They simply couldn't agree with one another, even though they'd been friends for many years in the past. And and because of that, we had great difficulty getting investment, and the company eventually folded. And we were working, uh, that was on the back burner. Uh, we were working on another pr uh, project that is, is not, not the same, but also derived from what we had found in the laboratory. And we were making progress on it. But as you know, um, uh, you know the technological developments uh, require a good deal of funding and, and such. And, and we had some uh, to start with, but eventually we ran into that problem. So the, it was just actually in the past month or two that the company folded. And I'm, I'm hopeful that um, someone will be willing to pick up these ideas and run with them. It's not us, because, because we're interested in fundamental discoveries, and there are uh, too many more to make yet. This is so crucial for humanity. Um, uh, the the need for energy keeps, I mean, it's ruining the planet, and there, there's not too much debate about that. So, if someone had interest in in picking up on this, um, you know, we would be happy to um, help in, in 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 some ways, although not get deeply involved in uh, whatever projects are necessary. It will require substantial investment, but. You know, the outcome could be, since we have proof of principle, the outcome could be amazing. Um, we'll see. Yeah. the One of the things, like really what's rooted in that uh, funding that you said, you know, like these type of advancements need funding is really they need a lot of failure in order to find success. Awesome. There needs to be, you know, constant trial of error of scale. Like scale is what usually kills most ideas. It's like, okay, well, can you do this at scale? Can you do it repeatedly? Can you do it at a cost that's, you know, makes it the inputs and the output, the outputs actually you can make money off the output and it's not constantly inputting more. Um, so I, I definitely can understand that. And rarely is, you know, somebody who discovers something also the person that ends up bringing it to that scale. It's, um, I do a lot of work in tech and startups and with the truism that I always say is the people who start and make the startup successful aren't the same as the people who make it successful at scale and they're not the same as the people who run it at scale. Um, it takes all different types of personalities to do those. Yeah, at scale. That's that's the critical feature, right. scale. Yeah, exactly, right. scale. Yeah, you, you, you know very well. Yeah, that's true. What... Um, and, and I mean, even if it's just the power that you've been able to get of, of lighting a, an LED is, um, it's still non-trivial though. Um, and it could potentially, once again, at scale, be, turn out to be not something that makes all that much sense, but it could also be something that makes sense. 
But regardless, the principle of what you found, it's one of the other applications that I saw is um, desalination or filtering the water. Because if there's this exclusionary zone, maybe the, the best analogy or use of the exclusionary zone as opposed to fourth phase um, is that if you set up a filter in such a way where it's at that top within that exclusionary zo a zone, the water that you're collecting is all that structured water. Um, so it's devoid of any contaminants. Is that is that essentially the, the filtration system that you have proposed and tested? Yeah, uh, essentially, we, you know, we, we, we can't conclude with confidence that it excludes all solutes, because we haven't studied all uh, solutes, but we've discovered in, in enough of them. And, um, you know, some of the, the stuff that you'd really want to exclude um, is is confirmed uh, to be excluded. You, you can think of it sort of like similar to ice, you know, ice is structured, it's a crystal. And what we found is also a crystal, it's a liquid uh, crystal and crystals are pure. But in order to attain purity, um, any any contaminants that had been in the water to begin with get ejected. You see, otherwise you wouldn't have a pure crystal. So, and that if you if you think about a glacier as a, a glacier forms, you know, beneath the lip of a glacier, the glacial moraine is all that stuff that has been excluded as the ice formed. And it's the same thing with fourth phase water. Uh, or exclusion zone uh, water, it excludes. And and so, um, you know, when you think about all the pollutants like um, pharmaceuticals that have been uh, discarded and uh, various poisons from manufacturing, at least many of them, if not most of them, I can't say all of them, um, but, but pretty much are, are, are excluded. And so all you need to do is set up a system where you capture that water and you capture the water, and it should be essentially devoid of, of those contaminants. So we tend to call it a filterless filter, um, because it doesn't have any physical filter. The filtration itself is done um, as a consequence of the separation, which occurs as the consequence of the sun's energy. Um, so you don't need a filter. You just set up the geometry in such a way that you have an input, which contains all the junk, and the output, you 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 um, uh, collect the EZ or fourth phase water. So not only is it devoid of all the junk that you don't want, but also it has the structure to it. And the structure, as we'll get into if you if you ask me, has health benefits. You see, so you get it. It's a double whammy. You get uh, or double double positive. You not only get rid of the junk, but also you gain something from it. And that's why that was our our, our first um, uh, development, and 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 the really um, exciting part for me, or more exciting part, is if you consider salt to be a contaminant, um, and you can get rid of the salt, you know, then then you've got a, a serious revolution because we all we all need drinking water, and drinking water is running out, um, and. Um, in, at least in theory, you can take ocean water and put it through this filter and extract easy water from it. So not only do you get water that's healthful, uh, but also it's devoid of contaminants and it's practically infinite. Um, all you need is sunlight uh, to produce it. So it's pretty exciting, you know, and it, and it is there's a, there's a huge. Yeah, there's a future uh, here, but it needs investment and 
and probably no small investment because there's still a lot of fundamental science that needs to be done um, to, to um, how should I say, um, 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 to clarify uh, some some aspects that are uncertain, and and only when these aspects have have been properly clarified, then you can move to the technological development, and we're we're actually eager to do those studies, but again, they require investment, they require money, they require someone who believes in that to be willing to invest in the fundamental science um, that underlies uh, the potential for development. The reward is a, a, a potentially enormous, and um, and that keeps me excited. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it's fascinating, um, and and yeah, it, uh, everything about it is foundationally different. It's it's almost like uh, understanding that. Uh, well, there's a great thing of a great analogy I bring up a lot by David Foster Wallace, where it's uh, there are two young fish swimming along. And an older fish passes them and says, morning, folks, how's the water? And keeps swimming along. And then, then two young fish turn to each other and they say, what the fuck is water? <laughs> um, it's almost fundamentally, fundamentally yeah. the same thing as learning that we live within air uh, before knowing it and mastering you know, airplanes and things like that and understanding the, the chemical composition of the world we live in because it is something so ubiquitous we don't think about even the fact that we have to breathe in order to stay alive. Um, your discovery of that is is very much akin to that. Yeah, yeah. the last one to notice the water is the fish, <laughs> right around them. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Um, I I want to ask about the health properties, but there was one thing that sparked in me when you were saying that. Um, so I live in the Midwest, and I know quite a bit about glaciers because I'm into geography, uh, and the glaciers are huge in the story of the Midwest. Um, and one of the things is that the glaciers did carry and they they did have rocks and stuff uh, within them when they got dropped. Like in my yard, actually, I have some massive boulders that are, you know, uh, um, there's a term for it, archaic, um, that have been here for a long time and they're huge. Um, you know, uh, what, uh, is there anything that you've discovered yet that's locked within that area? Is that a, such a thing or is the properties of it itself in the, you know, the crystal structure and how it forms truly exclude everything or is that something that is is that some more of the science before you can get to the engineering that has to be figured out yeah well yeah so i i i, I oversimplified um so when you have ice you have domains of ice so there's one domain that is, would be a pure crystal and then there's another domain next to it whose orientation may be a different orientation um you see and in between uh is is water actually between those domains of ice, and so uh, the, that water can actually contain all kinds of stuff. But the the um, the ice crystal itself, the particular domain, is essentially free of uh, of contaminants. So if, if that if that answers your question, uh, it, it does because because uh, there's like that. It's like super cooled water, or something like that. It's like water that's actually colder than freezing, but re refuses to be able to have because the pressure can't actually freeze into a, a crystal. If I'm if I remember that physics properly. Well, enough. water, you know, it's a misnomer. Water doesn't always freeze at zero degrees. It actually melts at at zero degrees. But uh, there are reports in the literature of under certain conditions, water. Um, won't freeze until you bring the temperature down to as, as low as minus 80 degrees C. Wow. 
I mean, this is enormously colder than what what you might think. So it depends on conditions. You know, the um, if you have a glass of water and you you gradually reduce the temperature, yeah, it'll freeze at roughly uh, zero degrees C. Um, but depending on the conditions, uh, it it can be radically different from zero degrees. So we, you know, we learn about zero degrees or thirty two degrees Fahrenheit. But uh, that's certainly not always the case. Wow. So when you, you could call it super cooled or whatever, but um, you could also say that there there is no absolute freezing temperature. Yeah, it's equivalent. That's interesting. Everything is relative, including the, the freezing of ice. Right. Uh, are you familiar with Schrodinger's uh, lecture, "What Is Life?" And I think he gave it in like 1945 or 44. The date is interesting to me because I feel like part of the reason it got I lost. Think he wrote a book on that, and um, yeah, I, I, but I can't remember the details. I'm sorry, but please ex- expound. No, it's quite all right. It's only there's only a, yeah there's only one part of it that I want I want to bring up. First off, it's fascinating because uh, there's a lecture that I think there was a book that he published, but the lecture uh, I find best because he goes off the cuff a little bit in the beginning, saying like you know scientists are usually not supposed to talk about things outside their field, but I'm going to put that on yeah. the side and talk about things outside my field. Uh, and, and he talks about, you know, what is life? Um, and part of it, uh, I have this obsession with uh, fractal geometry and most uh, recently, like the science of scaling, um, which is very uh, related to fractal geometry, actually. Um, so when he was talking about this part, it really stuck with me um, and has been something that I've been thinking about a lot. And then got sparked with a lot of the things that you were talking about, especially some of the health benefits. But he talks about, you know, what is life? And in the analogy he actually uses to talk about what it is, is he uses crystals. Um, and he says it's almost, you know, how crystals form, how they come, how they come, and then the structures that they take and what they look like and all of that. Um, life emerging, you know, he's, he posits um, should be something that we almost see more as a crystal, um, which I thought is an interesting segue into just saying like what are some of the benefits of this of taking this structured water crystalline water and actually consuming it because the beginning part where you said you cut yourself you're not pouring out water it's not like we're just a bladder of water um we're actually you know almost coated with this um structure this crystal over every fiber of everything so how is that affecting and you know first i guess how is it composed inside of us and then by proxy of that, how is increasing the amount of that by drinking it or consuming it um, affecting us? Yeah, that's, a, that's um, a, a, a good question. It's a broad question. So, so um, um, let, me, um, let me begin uh, just to introduce. Uh, if, you, if you read a, a, a textbook um, on either cell biology or biochemistry or anything like that, you'll learn that Water has essentially no role. It's uh, two thirds of us. And by the way, by the way, if you if you that's two thirds by volume. If you actually take the molecules and and line them up, all the molecules in your cell or in your body, and line them up one by one and do a count, more than ninety nine out of a hundred are water molecules, uh, because they're small. To make up that two thirds volume, you need you need a lot of them and someone has done the arithmetic and it, it's it's more than 99 out of 100 it shocks most people uh, to hear that but what's even more shocking is the current view that 
99 out of 100 molecules in your body don't do anything. It's like, it's like a bathtub that bathes you, <laughs> you know, the water around you doesn't do anything. You're just sitting in it. It's, it's the same thing with the so-called important molecules of life. They don't do anything. <laughs> you know, they just happen to be there. Well, I don't know who came up with that I, I, idea to begin with, but, um, you know, it, it sounds uh, to me anyway to be the, to somewhat unreasonable to think that 99 out of 100 molecules are just there. They don't, they don't do very much. You, you might say maybe even almost arrogant uh, to come to, that, to that, that point. Well, I wrote a book in uh, 2001 called Cells, Gels, and the Engines of Life. And it wasn't nearly as popular as the later book called The Fourth Phase of uh, Water, um, which you're maybe familiar with. Um, but but it, 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 what it brought forth is evidence that water plays an absolutely central role in every important process um, that the body um, participates in, um, you know, from like muscle cells that contract, um, secretory cells that secrete, um, uh, nerve cells that uh, communicate, Water, in, in each one of those cases, and, and more, is central to whatever process goes on. Uh, the, the water is not irrelevant. It's not just a background carrier of the more important molecules of life. The water is central to um, everything that goes on. Now, this is not a popular view, and it's not the view that you'll find in any textbook, but if you look at the evidence, um, I think it's pretty clear. So, the water is important. Now, I, as I suggested to you, the water that's inside your cells is fourth phase water. Um, so if that's true, if the water inside your cell is fourth phase water and water really counts, it means that if your cell is not filled properly with fourth phase water, your cell is not working very well. So take, for example, take the muscle cell. Um, you know, it needs to be filled with this water because the water is central to, uh, to what happens when your muscle contracts. And if you don't have enough of this water, the contraction is your, your cell is going to be dysfunctional in some way or even pathological. So your challenge then is, is to refill the cell with this kind of water um, to, so that there's a full complement of easy water. And um, if you don't have enough, you would call it so-called dehydrated I know I suffer myself from it. That's why I uh, keep some. It may look like coffee, but it's actually water um, here. I've been told by my physician that I'm dehydrated. This is the guy who knows something about water, but he said, you got to drink some more. And so there we go. Uh, drink some more. So, um, yeah. Okay, so we need to do that. And, and, uh, and, and so how, how do we do it? Um, well, there, there are um, um, a number of simple, simple expedients. And these are expedients that uh, people have known for thousands of years um, uh, work well in, in terms of promoting health. Um, and I, I can 
I can list them if, if you like, because they're actually pretty simple. And, um, and these expedients, it's not the same as, you know, you go to your doctor and you take this pill and that pill and that pill and et cetera, et cetera. It's just completely different. These are generally ancient mechanisms that have worked well throughout the ages. So, for example, the first one is drink more water, <laughs> right? You know, that's the no-brainer. And when you drink the water, what happens is, is that some of the water gets peed out, of course. Other of the water gets converted into easy water. I mentioned earlier that that conversion um, re requires um, some kind of hydrophilic surface, and your cells are filled with proteins, nucleic acids, all of which have mainly hydrophilic surfaces. That's it. And you need, you need infrared energy to do it. And so let me just digress for a moment. Where, where's the infrared energy coming from? Um, you know, we, we kind of uh, think of infrared energy, we think of an oven or a toaster, you know, you push down the lever of the, of the toaster and the coils grow, glow uh, bright orange, and you feel the heat, and you say, oh yeah, that's generating infrared energy. And that's correct. But infrared energy is all over the place. It's being radiated, uh, not just from your toaster when it's on, even your toaster when it's off, um, to some extent, but it's all over. And the way you can tell that it's all over is um, actually pretty straightforward. So um, if you, in, in, in the room in which you're, you're sitting, if you turn off all the lights and, um, and shut the blinds and uh, make it dark enough that um, even, even, um, even your smartphone camera can't pick up anything and your eyes can't pick up anything, if you take a sensor that has a that's an infrared sensor that is instead of being sensitive to visible light uh, which cameras what cameras do it's sensitive to infrared and it's really dark it picks up a beautiful image i'd be able to see your glasses and your headphones and um, um, the vent that's sitting and the fan that's sitting up above you etc cetera, etc cetera. because it's all they're all generating infrared energy and that's why the military uses this to see at night because everything is generating so so if you drink water, you have all this energy from infrared energy coming from outside. And some of the wavelengths of infrared energy penetrate through your body, uh, some uh, rather deeply, and they build easy water. It's not only from outside, but also from inside. All the metabolism that is going on inside your body generates heat. And the heat is is almost the same, essentially the same as infrared. Uh, the heating is the consequence of infrared energy. So, um, so, so you got infrared from outside and from inside, and therefore the water that you drink, a good fraction of it gets converted in, into easy water. So that, that's, um, that's one expedient. Second expedient, um, and these are easy expedients, right? And the second one is juicing. So what's juicing? Well, you know about it, I'm, I'm sure, but n not everybody does. You know, you go into your backyard and you look at the freshly grown plants and you take some of the leaves and you put it in your smasher, which basically squeezes, grinds, whatever, all the juice out of the leaves. And you drink the juice with maybe a little flavoring so that it's, it, it's palatable. And my late wife used to uh, do that, and I guess I uh, appreciated it. What are you drinking? Well, you're drinking the water from inside the plant cells. And these are freshly grown plant cells 
full of easy water. So you're essentially drinking easy water, and you're bypassing um, the, the, um, the need for the conversion of the water uh, from liquid water to easy water. So it's an effective way of, of putting easy water into your body and replenishing what's missing. And that's why many health uh, uh, wellness practitioners advocate uh, this. And, you know, I've heard from some of them that the patient comes and the advice is start, start juicing. And then they come back a few months later and not only have they lost weight for whatever reason, but whatever was afflicting them seems to have have improved. It's uh, it's cheap, easy, and um, and quite effective. It seems so. Those are those are uh, two of of the expedients. Um, another one is um, sunshine. Where I live, unlike where you live, in Seattle, in the winter time, the skies are persistently gray. We don't get much sunshine. The weather is a bit like London, and uh, we see gray skies um, so frequently. And when the sun comes out, you know, what you see on people's faces are smiles. They're happy. And the usual, <laughs> the usual interpretation is, well, it's a psychological effect. Suddenly we see the light. And, you know, and, and, and there probably is a, a certain amount of truth to that. But the other thing is that, you know, the light that's coming from the sun is roughly 50% infrared light. That's why it feels warm. It's not just visible light, it's infrared light. And so the sun is shining. Our brain, our head is being exposed to infrared light. Some of the wavelengths don't get through very far, but other wavelengths get through very easily because the evidence for that is you can actually do imaging uh, brain imaging. You start from a source here. It penetrates. The energy penetrates. Your skull goes into your brain, gets scattered, comes back out again and collected, and you get an image of the brain. So it it obviously passes through. And uh, and that's exactly the energy that's used um, um, to build easy water. And I would contend that your default state is is almost a childlike state of happiness. <laughs> Right, uh, so so the sun comes and you got a smile on your face because you're uh, building easy water and thereby returning to the default state. So, okay, so that's a third third one is, is sunshine, but uh, and a fourth one is you might say an amplification of sunshine, a sauna, or as the Finns say, sauna, <laughs> and um, I've experienced that myself. Uh, both in, in Finland and then in, in, in Russia, uh, where they call it banya instead of um, sauna, but it's, it's all the same. So what, what is this? Well, it's, it's a room where there's heat. It could either be dry or moist, but heat, heat. And, and heat, as we understand, is essentially the same as infrared. So you're exposing yourself, exposing yourself to infrared energy, um, huge amounts of infrared energy, and therefore, it's no surprise that um, you know if you enter into the sauna um, and come out 20, 30 minutes later, you feel renewed. Um, you feel happier. Your muscle aches uh, have vanished. Uh, you've got new energy, and I would contend that um, um, a possible explanation for that is you're simply flooding yourself with 
infrared energy. And, um, and that restores the easy water in your cells. And therefore, you feel better uh, because every cell in your body, including the cells in your brain uh, and your muscles and wherever, are now functioning uh, the way they were designed to function, not in the way they were functioning before you entered. Okay, so that's a fourth. Um, uh, a fifth one, maybe the most interesting uh, of all. Well, maybe not. Um, uh, I've got six of them on my, uh, on my agenda. The, so the fifth, fifth one is certain substances. Um, and you're, you're probably aware, and a lot of people are aware, that uh, dating back uh, from Ayurvedic times, 5,000 years ago or so, in India, um, certain substances were known to promote good health. And that's persisted to this day. So many, many people know, for example, turmeric, um, that you know, almost no matter what, what ails you if, you, if you take turmeric, you get better, or at least you move in, in, in that direction. And so we, we became curious about, about these agents, um, you know, what's going on. And um, one, the, there are two hypotheses that came up. One is that, well, you know, your body has turmeric receptors in... in um, all over the place that um, and and if you hit those receptors with turmeric you get a positive response and that particular organ or region or whatever improves that's one hypothesis another hypothesis there's one effect of turmeric and and that effect somehow is able to pervade the entire body you know and obviously the second one is more attractive because it's simpler and by the concept of Occam's razor, you know, you got two hypotheses. The simpler one is likely to be the correct one. And we thought, well, what, what is it that distributes itself over the entire body that could be susceptible to the influence of turmeric? And the no-brainer is, well, that's water. It's everywhere, you're right? And so um, if, if turmeric has an impact on water, maybe it builds easy water, uh, that would be a simple explanation. That's exactly what we found. Uh, we, studied, we studied exclusion zones um, in the presence of, by now, seven or eight different agents, um, agents known to promote good health, and it's exactly what we found, that um, the presence of turmeric um, expanded uh, the amount of, or increased the amount of easy water over a fairly wide concentration range um, that would be relevant to what we might have inside inside our body. So we studied turmeric for, for one. We studied basil, so-called holy basil, also from you know Ayurvedic tradition. And we also studied um, we studied aspirin. It had the same effect. You know, it's natural. It's from the bark of the willow tree. Uh, uh, we even studied Tylenol, which is sort of uh, similar. Uh, it's artificial, but um, essentially very much the same as uh, aspirin. Um, had the same effect. And the biggest winner of all the bonanza it was ghee, you know, clarified butter. And that, that's been... That's, I'm really into ghee, so I'm happy to hear uh, that. Well, okay, <laughs> there you go. So we took, we, took, um, we took some ghee, put it in the refrigerator so that it kind of held together, put it in water with microspheres, and looked at the exclusion zone that builds next to it. 
and it was almost a millimeter in size. You didn't need a microscope or even a magnifying lens to see it. Um, it's, it's huge, has a, a huge effect. So please continue to um, uh, enjoy Guy because it builds exclusion zones like nothing else or nothing that we've studied. So, wait, is, is that actually what's... So like uh, I'll make like a hot drink and I'll put Guy in there. This is totally a bracket, but there's like that film that starts on the top of it that I thought was the fat. Is that the fat and also this exclusion zone building? Well, I'm not sure what it is, but... Um, um, uh, I, I guess would, that's conjecture. Would, but anyway, so the sixth point. Yeah, okay. So, but, but all of those, those agents really, I mean, we think the reason that they're good for health is they build EZ, build exclusion zones in. And the sixth one is connecting yourself to the earth electrically. Um, so what, what, are, what are we, I see your brow is furrowed, so it means you haven't heard so much. Oh, no, no, it's, it's like grounding. Yeah. No, no, it's grounding. I've heard of it. Grounding, it's, it's called yeah. grounding. I'm just, I'm, I'm surprised to hear that that's, that you've been able to, to discover that. That's, um, we didn't discover I, it. I, it's very popular and I feel better if I walk around. Uh, oh, continue. You then. feel better if you walk without, without shoes and socks on, um, on the, on the... I, I feel an infinitely better. No, I, I, I'm almost always barefoot if I can be. Well, and, uh, I just do it cause I prefer it, but I have noticed that if I walk around, uh, my yard or whatnot with, uh, without my shoes on, I just, my mood gets elevated. That was why my brow was uh, furled because I usually like roll my eyes at people who are uh, of a certain persuasion that are like, "You got to ground. It's it's so essential." It it's, it seems like it's almost. Uh, well, the question is why? So why right, why do right. you think? Um, uh, well, I tell you, there are lots of biophysical studies, um, and there are many as as many studies as there are theories about why it works. And I, I naturally, I have my own, which is actually. Um, rather straight straightforward but let me let it has to do with easy build-up let me explain so um i'm not sure if you know uh but a lot of people educated in this country have no idea about this but it's a um, well-known fact uh, that the earth is not neutral the earth is negatively charged um so i i see you're nodding your head so you know about it but i got to tell you that uh, 10 years ago or 15 years ago or so, having been educated in uh, electrical engineering to start with, no professor ever told me that when you when you stick the plug into the receptacle, that third prong is is going to um, negative charge. It was always it's it's neutral. It's ground. There's no net charge. The Earth doesn't have any net charge. That's ridiculous. Or at least the issue was never even brought up because the assumption was made that it's so. I can tell you that when there was a Russian guy in my laboratory and just he spent six months um, and just as he was departing for Russia, we had a kind of final conversation before his flight. And he was telling me about the Earth's electric field. And I said, Andre, um, you must be talking about the magnetic field. I never heard of an electric field. And he looked astonished. He said, you never heard of the Earth's electric field? You never heard that the ionosphere was positively charged and the earth was negatively charged and in between these two acting like plates of um, two electrodes or a capacitor is an electric field uh, no I, I never heard of such a thing he said well there 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 must be something deficient with the american educational system which i 
won't deny. But he said in Russia, even middle school students know that the earth is negatively charged. And I, you know, I'm sure that's true. He was not lying to me, but we never heard of such a thing here. So um, the end of the day, I went home and I was scratching my head. I, you know, I couldn't believe what Andre was saying because if it's true, it's, it's consequential. And next morning, one of my uh, students brought me the um, book of lectures of the famous uh, physicist Richard Feynman, you know, Nobel laureate, uh, who you mentioned, the Einstein of the second half of the previous century. Volume 2, Chapter 9, um, full of evidence for the negative charge of the Earth. Um, I couldn't believe what I was seeing because you know, if the Earth is negatively charged, it just changes, uh, changes so much. So now, if you think about it, if you connect yourself electrically to the Earth, um, and the Earth is negatively charged, if you don't have enough negative charge, of uh, easy water, negative charge, uh, all your cells are negatively charged. Um, you stick electrodes in, it's been known for uh, more than half a century. We did experiments ourselves early on, numerous people. Um, it's a no-brainer, you know, but if your cell doesn't have enough easy, easy water, it has less negative charge. And so if you connect yourself to an infinite source of negative charge, the negative charge will seep into your body. And we know if you add negative charge to water, we found out experimentally, builds easy water. So I think um, the, the simple, simplest explanation for this is um, when you connect yourself electrically uh, to the earth, um, you draw some of this negative charge, it rebuilds easy water, and then you function uh, better than you functioned previously. And so that's why you, um, if you walk on the grass barefoot, um, you feel better. Uh, it improves, it, it restores your brain to the default um, uh, status, which is feeling good. You know, kids generally uh, feel good. And so this is particularly important these days when everybody is depressed over isolation and over all the afflictions that we're facing on a day-to-day -day basis. Walking on the grass can really help. I got to tell you just one memory as a kid. I grew up in New York City in Brooklyn, and, and we had a beach over there, Brighton Beach. And um, in the summertime, everybody, like almost everybody was there because um, it was hot and unpleasant and you really wanted to be at the beach. And the crowding was such that in order to walk from the boardwalk to the ocean, you, um, you, you, you couldn't walk a straight line. You had to kind of weave your way between people lying on the beach. It was that crowded. It was, it was almost unpleasantly so. So one day, I, I think I must have been 10, 12 years old, I was lying there with, with my friends, and we decided to bury one another, just for fun, you know, as kids will do. And I was the last one to be buried. And they buried me up to, up to here. And then, you know, it was late in the afternoon, it was time to go. Um, parents were waiting for all of us, and they said, okay, we got to unbury you because we got to leave. This is one of the most vivid memories I have from my childhood that I simply did not want to get unburied. The, the, um, the pleasure that I got from being 
uh, enveloped and electrically connected. It was right near the edge of the water. The sand was damp, and I was very much connected electrically uh, to the earth. I, I felt bliss. Uh, that's the only word I can I can use to describe it. Bliss was incredible. It was unimaginable, and and therefore I remember the experience to this day because I can't remember any other experience that were as blissful. I hear the same, by the way, from uh, people who uh, do um, transcendental meditation when when they meditate as um, um, as a group. Um, and, and they do this uh, siddha, S-I-D-D-H-A, where they actually rise up and come down and rise up. It's a, it's a kind of levitation that they do. That's the word they use to describe it when they do it as a group. Um, they, the bliss is the word that they use. And I, I remember back from my childhood that particular experience, and so I can imagine exactly what they feel. So, yeah, anyway... Um, connecting yourself to the earth. There are many theories as to why it seems to work as well as it does. It does seem to work. Um, and I, my own opinion is, is very simple. It has to do with electrical uh, uh, negative charge that's drawn from the earth into your body, restoring your easy water to the level at which it ought to be. That's fascinating. I'm sorry for the long speech, but um, you asked, so I answered. <laughs> No, I, I've been giving you a lot of broad an, uh, questions, so I'd imagine long answers. Uh, that's fascinating uh, as far as those those six different mechanisms of, of increasing it. Um, that's that's really interesting. I uh, similarly to walking on the ground, actually something that I notice uh, I've I've swam my whole life, like com- mostly competitively, um, and when I lived in San Diego, I, I had like a, a rash of injuries. Um, and I found swimming in the bay for 20 minutes, not only like incredibly elevated my mood, um, but my, for example, one of the injuries I had was I almost tore my Achilles. I, I, I pulled it pretty badly. Um, and coming out of the water, I would notice a large difference in pain and flexibility and being able to walk easier and all of that, as opposed to going in. And, um, you're looking, you're making, you're making me look through that through renewed eyes. Cause like a blissful feeling I had numerous times when I, the water's freezing cold um and you know sometimes i'd come out of it with a bliss a blissful feeling um and like you know all the all the worries in the world went away uh and you know it was just pure connection um and now it's making me think differently to that which is i guess a segue to this um you mentioned in the beginning that you know electricity is almost an uh electrical charge i think is what you said is an underrated facet of essentially our physical reality um, and yep. that it's filling our body is and adding more structured water, more positively or, or negatively charged, ne- more adding more negatively charged water in these crystalline structures to our body, somehow in, in increasing the functions and, and kind of bringing everything back to like a, a baseline homeostasis, like you were mentioning with your mood, which by the way, I'm going to, I'm going to cite you because I think that's a, a delightful way of thinking about our base blissful self of you know if we like everything is is happiness because uh i think nowadays we're far too pessimistic um but my i guess the lead into the question really is is um is this structured water that is a fundamental part of you know 90 some 95 percent of the actual fibers and parts of our body um is it interfacing electricity is that what it's it's 
doing? Like, what's the mechanism of what it's actually doing with the cells? Is it helping them? Well, I'm not sure what you mean by interfacing electricity. I'm not sure what you mean by that. Is it is it interfacing? Is is it the conduit between, you know, a muscle tissue and a tendon tissue and a blood, you know, uh, and hemoglobin? Like, what what is it doing while it's inside of your body? That adding more of it is is helping it in some way like what is it fundamentally what's the mechanism of its action you know within the body other is it helping comprise the structures of of muscle fibers okay yeah yeah let me illustrate you mentioned muscle muscle would be a, a good illustration so so what happens during contraction this is unlike the prevailing theory i apologize for that but i think the prevailing theory is not uh, is not adequate by any means uh, um, what happens is uh, during contraction is that um, there's a so-called phase transition and you know phase transition sounds very technical but uh, it's really it's 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 really straightforward what happens is that the proteins and the water undergo a transition um, so when your muscle is not contracting when it's in the relaxed state uh, the proteins are long extended filaments and the water is easy water. Okay. Now, your muscle then goes into, uh, 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 the frog wants to catch the fly and so the muscle starts contracting, right, to propel the frog to catch the fly. And, and as soon as it starts contracting, what happens is there's a, a change, so phase transition, a change in the water and in the protein, both. They undergo a change together. The water undergoes a change um, from the um, easy water to ordinary water. And, and the proteins undergo a, a contraction uh, themselves. You won't read about that in the textbook, but if you, if you read my book on muscle contraction uh, from um, 1990, uh, you'll see the evidence for that, um, and there's a lot of a lot of evidence. So your muscle contracts, the proteins fold or contract, and the water undergoes a uh, a change. And then, when the muscle is ready to relax again, um, it undergoes a transition back to the original. Uh, the water becomes structured, and the proteins um, unfold back to their original state. And by the way. That's the stage that requires energy to get back to that state. You need energy to build the easy water, the structured water, and you need energy to return the proteins back to their state. And if you don't have enough, you've had the experience. Your protein, your after three three matches of tennis, you know your muscles have had it, and they 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 may be unable to return to their initial state, and you get a knot or in a your cramp. Muscle. Yeah, right, and and. Um, and that's just an, an example of it. So, so the, the process of contraction uh, involves both the proteins in the cell um, and the water in, in the cell. And so um, if you can't restore the full amount of easy water, you can't get back um, to it, your muscle is not going to be ready for the next contraction. And um, your muscle is going to be dysfunctional because the water is essential for the contractile process. It's not irrelevant at all. It's central. And, uh, so you got to make sure that by hook or by crook uh, that you maintain a, a full and, and complete complement of easy water. And um, um, I, that, I guess 
That, that's what, how I w uh, would answer your question, although I may have deviated from, um, from the exact... Yeah. No, no, no. That makes complete okay. sense. That makes complete sense. So just to make sure I, I get it, um, the mu muscles at rest and like I'm about to swing a racket. My, uh, the ball is coming towards me. I'm waiting for the right time. And now I'm starting to swing the racket. From the moment it's at rest, it's easy water. Right. And then when the muscle is contracted, the proteins are flipping it, which, which is the contraction of the muscle to give it the force and the energy to put that weight or, you know, well, it's weight because we, we see it and measure it as weight, but it's really that force into hitting the, the ball. It hits the ball and I'm going through my follow through and I'm relaxing the muscle. Um, and then it's taking energy, uh, you know, from calories or, or whatnot. It's taking it from and flipping it back to easy water. So it's, it's easy water at rest. And then the, and what actually is contracting and creating the force, the energy of force is flipping it back into H2O from h Three, two, H3O2. Oh, or H3O2. Um, yeah. Uh, and yeah, yeah. I, I yeah, mean, yeah. yeah, I wouldn't say so it's that's creating it. that's... the, the, the so... force, but it's part of the process. It's central to uh, what goes on when your muscle contracts. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. And, I, you know, if I, if I may interject something um, um, about the energy inside your body, you know, we've, we've all learned and we know uh, if we eat pizza, we get energy. Um, or uh, no matter what we eat, we, we get energy from it. And there's not much dispute. And how does it work exactly? So um, we, all, we all learn that the ultimate source of energy in your body is from ATP, um, adenosine triphosphate. And the story is that, that, that we've learned and we've known now for 70 years or, or even, even more, is that the food that we eat gets converted through a very complex biochemical process into ATP and ATP has a so-called high energy bond and that high energy bond is ultimately where the energy lies and um, it's in every textbook and we learn it and we just presume it's true uh, however if, if you uh, it, it might not be true and uh, let me just give you the, the background uh, of this and, and tell you where else the energy might uh, come from. Um, so there was a, a, a well-known uh, group, uh, academic group in chemistry that came up with, with this idea that ATP has a special high energy bond uh, whose energy can be released to, to contract your muscle or do uh, wh whatever. A year later, another group uh, reported that the first group is wrong, that they made a simple arithmetic mistake. And this is described um, in the, the um, website of Gilbert Ling, whose name I mentioned, it's gilbertling.org, where he discusses um, the situation. And nobody has ever, to anybody's knowledge, or to his knowledge and my knowledge, ever followed up. So if this group that challenges the result is correct it it may be in that that this mechanism that is is in our in our books uh, and we all learn it um, it's fundamental might not be right um and i don't know the answer i don't know if the original group was right or the challenger was right but nobody's ever followed up so it's not clear uh there's another potential source of energy um and the extent to, to which it really works is not clear at all. And that is the electrical energy that I talked about 
right? So the water that's in our cell, um, the, the water is that the easy water is negatively charged. And so you've got a cell that's full of this negatively charged uh, water. And that, by the way, I would say parenthetically, um, is why our cells bear net negative charges, the water. And if you read in the textbook, you'll find that it has to do with membrane, membrane uh, features like pumps and channels. And I wrote a paper a few years ago to dispute that, and I won't go into the reasons why, but a simpler explanation is easy water has negative charge. Therefore, if your cell is filled with easy water, it's got negative charge. And by the way, if your cell is pathological, it has less negative charge. That's been demonstrated because it, one of the reasons for the pathology is the lack of easy water. So, so that, um, at, any, at any rate, um, it is possible that some of the energy uh, that our body needs to do what it's doing comes from that electrical charge. All those negative charges inside the cell want to get away from each other, just in the same way that in the atomic nucleus, as described, all those positive charges want to get away from each other. And that amounts to potential energy. Right? So your cell is filled with potential energy because of this negative charge from the easy water. Right? And the question is, to what extent is that potential energy used by your body? It might be zero, but it might be a lot, you see. And um, when, when your cell uh, is activated, if this negatively charged easy water transitions into ordinary water um, with no charge, that energy is actually used. And so, um, so the question is, um, to what extent you, me, and everybody else, to what extent does our energy come from electrical charge as opposed to ATP? The answer is unknown. Um, it could be uh, zero, it could be 1%, it could be 100%. Um, you know, it's not, it's not really clear. And so this is a frontier issue that, um, in, in my view, needs to be uh, seriously addressed because, you know, you want to you know where your energy comes from. And I, I, I just, you're about to ask a question, but let me just finish by mentioning you know, there are people who don't eat. Um, there are many of these, and um, a lot of people believe that it's impossible. How could you survive without eating? And, um, um, but this is so well documented now that it's really hard. It's, it, it's hard to deny the fact. There's even a, a film where a, a couple of dozen of these people are interviewed. Um, the producer is a guy named Straubinger from Austria. And I think it's called, in the beginning, there was light. And he says that light, the energy is coming from light. So um, if these people don't eat, then, then the tra transition, um, I mean, they, there's, there's no food that they can uh, convert into ATP. And the question is, well, where do they get their energy? I, I know some dancers who dance every day, or some, one at least, uh, who contacted me. And she says that she... Um, She'll spend two, three, four weeks without eating. Uh, she just has no desire, and yet she dances every day. <laughs> you know, it's just incredible because you know what uh, energy is required for that. And so it is. It is possible, in fact, um, uh, that some energy comes from the electrical charge that I've been talking about, which in turn comes from the sun, which comes from light. Uh, I mean, essentially. So you may, you know, plants get all their energy from light, and you and I may get at least some of our energy from light in the same way. 
uh, as, as, as plants do. So the first step of photosynthesis, in fact, is the splitting of water into H plus and OH minus. It's the same hmm. as what we discovered um, more generally, that um, the splitting of water in, into the negative and into the positive. There may be a correspondence then between what we discovered and the first step of photosynthesis. It may be that we, what we discovered is a kind of generic photosynthesis that we as animals use the same way that plants uh, use it. Something to That's think fascinating. About. Uh, have you ever heard of Joffrey West? Joffrey West? He's like with the Santa Fe Institute. Um, he is uh, a physicist at uh, Joffrey West. Joffrey West. W E S T. Um, I'm afraid not. He's okay. Well, he's a, he's a physicist. He's a physicist with the Santa Fe Institute. Uh, he wrote a book that I'm still digesting before reading a second time called Scale. Um, and it's about the science of scaling. Um, and something that I was wondering when I was reading through some of your work is actually right where you were, where you're at, uh, which is, you know, without more uh, science that's necessary into it. But one of the things that Joffrey West brings up is there's these somewhat golden numbers that appear in nature um, that are all scale and power laws. And one of them that's fascinating to me that I, I use to try to spark people's curiosity when I, I meet them on the street of, of physics is there's certain, there's certain numbers that reoccur. Um, and one of them, I think it's one to the fourth. I'm not exactly positive, um, but it, sorry, it's one to the fourth. I believe I'm not sure it's, it's one to a fractional uh, exponent. Um, and what it does is it, it's the energy necessary for the size of an organism. So like the example that he uses is a mouse versus a blue whale. Uh, and the energy required, yeah. you know, per the size of the organism goes down with the larger the organism is. So the larger you are, in essence, the less you need to eat. Um, which one of the things I was wondering from your work is I wonder if the... Uh, well, the larger the size means the more structured water to keep that system in place, right? So I wonder if some of the potential energy is somehow derived from the size of it, which is why essentially, you know, something that's double in size needs only two thirds around the amount of energy as opposed to needing double the amount. You would imagine, you know, you scale an organism up double, its requirements are double, um, and it's actually not, it, it, it goes down, it's, it's like about 75% around, right? Um, which is fascinating, and it's an area that I'm, I'm eagerly waiting more people to get funding to find out some of these biological processes because that's fascinating. Um, I, uh, I, I'd not, I'd heard something about this, but but uh, not in, in any detail, and um, I have no comment. I don't, I, I, I don't know. I can only, I can imagine though that. Um, you know, if much of your energy comes from um, uh, metabolism, uh, heat uh, that is generated, that um, it might be more efficient for larger animals than smaller animals because um, the infrared energy might dissipate into the environment for the smaller ones, but the bigger ones, no. Um, it has to go through all that tissue in order to do so. So it could be more efficiently consumed by the larger animals. That would be my... Uh, First thought, but obviously it needs thinking. I don't have a, I don't have an yeah. answer to it. It's it's a, it's a new ang it's a new angle to the the yeah. same thing. It's really what it is. I didn't I wasn't expecting you'd have uh, an answer to that. It's well, more it's, just like another aspect yeah, of, no, of nature that. Yeah. 
Um, but it's it's certainly interesting. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's it, it's it's interesting. So closing on this then is some of the health positives that come out of structured water or um you know having these type of substances for example uh that like turmeric that you mentioned that you know increase the you know, amount of structured water or somehow aid that mechanism of, of going across um uh, which sauna by the way that's amazing I, i'm actually really uh well read on saunas as a health benefit and, and it being uh, assisting in structured water is, is fascinating that's that's very interesting um if you were to take you know water that is in some way more you know has a higher concentration of structured water in it um perhaps it's you know been bathing in sunlight or something like that um are the health benefits from that just because it's very similar in the way of of the other things is it just aids and assists and and have we have has people been able to start seeing markers of what some of those benefits are as far as overall overall health or certain conditions that it can assist in or is this another area that's kind of starting uh, yeah 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 um um yeah so particularly in 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 agriculture you know dealing with the health of plants um there are many many reports uh people have been studying this some of it is not published um uh, some of it is more anecdotal, but people have been using various kinds of structured, so-called structured, uh, easy, whatever water, um, in agriculture, and they find that it, it, it really works and that the plants are more robust, more healthy, they grow uh, larger. Um, in, in human health uh, as well, um, and so that may be where we started this interview um, uh, with the point that some people say, well, structured water is just a big marketing scheme, um, you know, and and um, uh, I could see how, how one, one can surmise that because some of the companies, some of the uh, various water producing companies, and there are so many of them now, some of them have really taken up the idea of structured water, easy water, fourth phase water. And they tout that as, as being uh, that their water contains more than other waters. And and I can see how that can be interpreted as a marketing scheme. Um, you know, uh, we, we don't have anything to do with that. They have just taken up the idea. And there should be something to it because um, if 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 real, um, the the companies who who produce that kind uh, kind of water, they don't they don't generally describe their evidence that that they actually uh, that their water contains easy or structured water. There are actually fairly simple ways of of um, determining how much easy water there is in a given a given sample, but they don't do that in in, in general. So. So it's really difficult to, um, uh, in in many cases, difficult to know exactly how much easy water, what fraction of the water is easy water. You know, it's it's never that we we know of hundred percent, except uh, except when you so-called <laughs> dehydrate the water. Uh, it, it it seems like a strange word, but um, you're left with a kind of powder. Uh, and that powder is pure easy. Uh, we've been studying that. It was actually dis discovered by an Italian group uh, headed by Vittorio Elia from Naples. They've published a few papers showing that they can produce so-called dehydrated water. <laughs> uh, if, 
if you can imagine such a thing. And we, they gave us a sample of it, and I was hoping that people in my lab would test it. But, but we've, we've now reproduced this, and we've demonstrated that this is not due to some sort of contaminant or something that might be in the water. It, it's really easy water. And we're working on preparing a manuscript um, for it. So, so yeah, um, um, this stuff um, seems to be good for for health. In in theory, it should be good for health. It's been demonstrated in uh, various studies on plants that it really works. Um, you know, plants prefer rainwater uh, to artificial. Um, uh, hydration. The, the plants grow bigger and healthier when you get rainwater. And one of the reasons for that, I think, is that a raindrop um, consists of an easy shell um, and ordinary water inside um, with, with protons. And, and so it's got easy, an easy component to it. And the, the plants like that easy, and therefore they, they grow better. So I'm sorry, I, I, um, I can't give you... Um, uh, you know, uh, uh, definitive response to um, to your question, but it looks it looks promising, and and also sometimes um, the spring waters, um, which come from uh, some of which come from fairly deep within the earth, many of them appear to have a lot of easy water because I've seen tests of them of some of them. And, um, and the tests indeed show a positivity. So drinking spring water, some spring waters, um, not necessarily all, appear to be good for health. So there we have it. That's fascinating. No, no, I mean, that's, that's sparking the, the curiosity to at least look for it more in the future. That's, that's fascinating. Um, this is such a, a earth-shattering, mind-blowing uh, mind fuck of of a subject and i i think that that's the only way to properly emphasize it to be honest because of how much this is scratching the surface of what is potentially possible or what it may require asterisks of going around through everything of you know how our body functions to how plants absorb how how to have good health what is i mean baseline i mean it, it is your work is fascinating i'm so glad you're out there I'm so glad that you're doing this. I'm so glad you took the time to talk with me. Uh, well, thank, you. thank you for your kind comments. I appreciate that. Uh, um, yeah, for us, for me, it's it's um, it's really exciting. Uh, um, you know, you you asked early on what gives me pleasure, and um, it, it's a, a discovery uh, that you know you you discover. Discover something, and if if it's real, it it generally there's wide application, and it 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 serves to to answer questions that have existed beneath the surface that people don't really pay attention to, and that's ultimately what for me gives me great pleasure, and I, so I appreciate your enthusiasm. Um, that helps, <laughs> you know. Um, <laughs> yeah, thank you. It's fascinating. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, no, no problem. I have this uh, truism that I, I, I quite like philosophy, and the truism is that I think the truth only lies in paradox. Things that are paradoxical tend to be closer to reality or truth. You know, I think often reality and truth get misconflated, but they're almost 
at the base level should be the same. Mm. Um, I think our own personal experience is what gets layered on top of that and colors our view of the world. Um, if it's, you know, this is upsetting the status quo, we shouldn't be looking into this. It's, it's, it's so foundationally wrong. Like, we can't think of it. Um, or it's, no, this is weird and funky and doesn't seem to be, but it is. And this is the way that it's, it's changing things. Um, we may have to think about the difference between the lines we draw um, and maybe think of a different way forward, which is the space that I like to live in. So your work is, um, it's going to give me a lot to look into for years to come, and I appreciate it. Well, thank you. Um, have, a, have a read of, um, if, if you haven't read it all, The Fourth Phase of Water. It's a really popular. Um... It's in the mail. It's in the mail right now, oh, actually. Okay, okay. That's great. Yeah. Um, um, I, I try, you know, in simple, uh, simple concepts and simple words um, to describe all the phenomena that we've barely touched on. Um, and, and, and there are many, many de details there and explanations for phenomena that we, you know, we just ignore, but we need to understand. And, and in, in the book, I provide what I believe is a simple um, explanation for all that. Hope you enjoy it. <laughs> Yeah, and I'm I'm looking forward to it. And and simple is genius, so I, I appreciate that. And uh, there's a lot more to this. I mean, like there's so much. This is a boundless subject. That I mean, the information like capabilities or information in water and all of that. Like that, I found. I mean, I, I'm in uh, you know emerging technology is the space I live. Uh, emerging information technology because I would un unbelievably underscore that all of the there's no new revolution happened even i won't go into it it's another for another diatribe but uh what we mostly think of revolution as far as communication technology is building over things that are very old we're just able to have moore's law that saves us to actually give us some type of uh positive change <laughs> we're just running off of being able to make things smaller and smaller um yeah 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 i'm with you on that yeah i can i can I, I can see that philosophically speaking, yeah. we're on the same wavelength. Yeah. yeah. Well, we can stop the recording there. Thank you again. Is there anything else yeah. you to say before we can wrap in a second, but I'll, I'll stop the recording if, unless there's anything else you want to say. Okay. Well, thank you. Thank you for your great, great questions. And um, um, yeah. thanks for the opportunity. I appreciate it. <laughs> thank you very much. If you like what you hear, please tap that follow or subscribe button. You also can find this episode, all episodes in the series, or check out our daily minute podcast by visiting us at bandwidth.productions.